Climb into the cockpit with pilot and Wing Square's Chief Legal Officer, Tim Perilla, as he invites legal leaders aboard to share advice that will help you navigate even the most turbulent times of in-house counsel work. We'll cover a range of topics from data privacy to legal team structure to public company transactions and beyond. You don't want to miss this series. Fasten your seatbelt and prepare for takeoff. You're listening to Cockpit Council. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Cockpit Council. My name is Tim. I'm the Chief Legal Officer at Linksquares. And today we have Faraz Rana with us. Welcome, Faraz. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. So uh, we ask every single uh, every single guest on the show, we ask to give your pre-flight ritual. Yeah. Like actually, like before you get on an airplane, do you have a ritual that you do? And yeah. what is it? Yeah. So I, I think I may be one of the fewest people left on earth who actually enjoys being a passenger on an airplane. <laughs> I, um, you know, it's, 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 I think it's because the plane is one of the few places left where you can truly disconnect. Yeah. Um, so anyways, that's an aside. Uh, my, my pre-flight ritual, I grew up abroad uh, okay. in the Middle East. And one of the things that was impressed upon me, when you grew up abroad, traveling is like par for the course. You kind of do it because it's very cheap. And um, I traveled a lot with my family growing up. And one of the things that was taught to me was when you go on a plane, you always dress up. Yeah. So yeah. now when I fly from like New York to Delaware, I will dress up like I'm going to a business meeting. And That's awesome. It, <laughs> and it, like, it's hilarious to a lot of the people on the plane because, I mean, they don't know why I'm dressed up. But right. I, um, if I've got friends or family I'm traveling with, you know, I have a whole outfit that I wear. Um, yeah. So that's my pre-flight ritual. I have an outfit. I dress up like I'm, you know, in the 1980s. That's, a, that's <laughs> awesome. I think that's that's an element that's been lost these days. I like, agree. Like you see people in like, like gym wear and you're like I, like I usually wouldn't wear most of that even out of my house much less on an airplane That's yeah crazy. I I um I will not comment on whether I judge those people <laughs> but they're, they're, I will I judge them I judge them hard <laughs> I'm sure there are people judging me as well wearing my sports coat on like a two-hour flight yeah um but uh but you know it goes both ways so uh that's, that's yeah, right it's stuck with me all these years and I I, I don't want to let it go well, there, there's like the golden age of air travel that's, that's referenced right. in there. So, like, uh, have you have you been to the TWA hotel at uh, JFK yet? I um, I love that place. Oh my god! So I it's I've, awesome. I've done a thing where you can staycation there. Okay. So I mean, I I feel like I've I've created this art of like going like you're you're living in New York, but yeah. you go to the TWA hotel. Um, you book a room. They've got like a pot a, a pool that's overlooking. Yes the um uh the runway so you see planes taking off as you're sitting in this pool yep. they've got like all the ambiance of the 1970s um it's the same terminal that you see in that movie with uh tom hanks uh, catch me if you can catch me if you can yeah yeah um and you are transported out of new york for like a day and a half so i've oh, done yeah. a thing where i just go there for the weekend come back on a sunday and i feel like i've taken a vacation but oh, I love absolutely. that hotel. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. incredible. And the uh, the the uh, the Continental yes. that they have that they converted into a bar. That's right. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. You go into this old plane and you're you know you can have a beverage and um, yeah the whole the whole setup is amazing. The coolest thing to do there is get a couple of pilot buddies 
and you fly in. Okay. Right. You park you park your plane and spend an insane amount of money to park your plane overnight at JFK. Okay. And you get out, you check into the hotel, and exactly as you said, you jump in the pool. There's the bar right next to the pool, and right. you're just sitting there watching, you know, having drinks and watching the uh, watching the planes go. It well, makes for a really great evening. Then take you know take a taxi into the city and grab dinner. Right. And uh, man, it's it's an awesome awesome way to spend yeah. the evening. Agreed. I Agreed. love it. Yeah. The rooms the rooms have that like crazy. Um, uh, like 1950s feel to it. Too. Oh yeah, yeah. 50s, the 60s feel to it. Yeah, awesome. the, they've got the the color scheme. It's all red and white with the yep. TWA colors. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, they've got a gift shop where you can buy old souvenirs from from the 70s. Um, and then I think like once I went, they had people walking around dressed up. So you really do like feel like you're you're in a different time time warp altogether. Oh yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, they've got music playing. It's it's great. And yeah. the uh, the ticker board that they have That's right. there is really yeah, yeah. really neat. That's well. right. Anyway, yeah. We should probably all right. We, we should probably talk about topic. <laughs> we gave a great advertisement yeah. for TWA Hotel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Book now using this referral code. Now <laughs> cut that out. That's awesome. We're keeping that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um. So, uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about your career path, uh, and, and what you're doing today. Uh, but start, start with sort of what, what you've been doing since law school. Tell yeah. us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So I, um, I took, uh, the linear path from law school, went to a large law firm in New York, uh, did corporate M&A, yep. mergers and acquisitions, um, at a law firm in New York, Walgotchel, one yeah. of these large law firms. Great firm. Um, and, um, you know, I, so I got to work on these like massive deals, like gazillion dollar deals. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, everyone's like, oh, cool. You're working on this giant merge. I was like, yeah, it's really exciting. And then in my head, I was like, oh, it's really not. I'm, I'm, I was loved being an M&A lawyer. just hated how minute I was in the sort of machinery of, of everything that was running. Right. The, my, my favorite part about being an M&A lawyer was looking at the companies that were being acquired. Yep. Um, so I would look at the founders, I would look at the product they're selling, how they're making money, um, you know, how long they've been around. And I realized I really like a fascination with how companies are built and run. Yeah. So that started this journey of like, well, I want to build my own company. I had all these startup ideas. So I started working on a startup idea when I was at a law when I was at my law firm. Mm -hmm. um, the idea was uh, to connect creative writers who are published uh, with the rest of the world of all, everyone who like wants to be a creative, right? Okay. I feel like half the world like wants to write a book. Of course. The uh, other half wants to be a musician. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> so imagine the people who have actually gone to school for this stuff yeah. who haven't made it, but still need to like figure out a way to make money, connect them with the other half of the world. Like the rest of the world yeah. are like the aspiring people, you know, yeah. I'm an amateur. Uh, you might be a great musician, but I'm, I, I'm okay. I, well, I'm yeah, <laughs> the right, you know, the yeah. folks who, who truly are amateurs. So I was like, create a marketplace where these people can meet and potentially transact with each other. Yeah. Um, it failed miserably because <laughs> yeah. I was working at a law firm, working yeah. hundred hours a week. And yeah. I didn't even know what, how would a startup look like? Right. Um, but, um, you know, after it failed, I realized I had so much fun working on that idea um, that I had to leave and uh, build something. Okay. Uh, so I told all my law firm partners, um, you know, I'm going to leave. I had some kind of backup ideas, but 
nothing really that was that concrete. And I ended up um, uh, leaving and then being in the startup world in New York for about, you know, a few months, ended up interning at a startup. So I, I showed up as like, you know, this corporate lawyer in his early 30s, like, yeah. working at a WeWork with these people who were like in their early 20s. And, you know, they were looking at me like I was a clown with three heads because they were right. like, what are you doing here? Right. <laughs> and I just wanted to know, I wanted to learn like what it was like to build a company. And I wanted yeah. to, and the thing that I realized from that whole experience was um, it is not at all glamorous. Uh, no. Not at all glamorous. No. Uh, and so when you're in the startup community, you get to meet people. Um, then ended up meeting two, uh, well, I got introduced to two people who are building a new company, okay. a fintech company. And um, they said, oddly enough, we want someone with a legal background to be part of the founding team. Yeah. Uh, so we chatted for a couple of months and I ended up joining these guys um, and built this company called Bread, buy now, pay later company. Yep. Um, and uh, we grew the company from zero to 200 people, got acquired. So happy to talk more about that. But that's sort of like the, the law school to fintech journey. That's, that that's awesome. I, and one of the things that we talk a lot about here is uh, the transition from a law firm to an in-house uh, to an in-house role yeah. and some of the challenges. But it sounds like you got a bit of a crash course in that uh, by going, you know, going right into the startup world and, and going at it from a business perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you learn very quickly when you're at a startup that um, unlike when you're at a law firm and you give advice, um, you need to make decisions yes, and you need to make a judgment call and stand behind it. That's right. Uh, it's not enough to present the analysis. It's not enough to give advice. You actually have to make a decision. Um, and that's one thing I always tell young lawyers when they're kind of embarking on this either startup journey or going in-house. Um, I tell people, um, have the guts to make a decision. You may, you will probably not be right half the time. Yeah. Um, but had developed that muscle of making a judgment call, making a decision and and being confident about it, uh, because that's ultimately your job as a lawyer uh, when you're at a startup. We all know this. If, if you work in house, um, you're you're being a lawyer in house, just just sort of tabled stakes. It's kind of the right. necessary part of how you got there. That's right. You're really a business person. That's right. That has to make decisions. That's exactly correct. So. When you think about when you think whenever I think about that, I think about it in terms of accountability. Yeah. Right. Uh, law firms are pretty good at sort of limiting their level of accountability. But mm-hmm. when you're in house, you really can't afford to do that. Right. Right. And it's I, I think it's an expectation now, um, especially more more so these days than maybe it used to be. Um, it's the expectation of the executive team that the lawyers have an opinion. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I know, uh, I, I tell, you know, I tell the folks in my org, this lawyers and non-lawyers alike, like, I, I really don't want people to come to me with problems that they don't already have a proposed solution to. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you, if you structure things like that, and if you approach the role like that as, as an attorney where it's like, yes, I have a problem and I have some analysis, it's like, all right, we'll propose the solution as well. Right. And make sure it's one that you're willing to stand behind. Mm-hmm. Right. And then at that point, you're just pressure testing it with, you know, with your your boss, whomever that may be. Right. Right. And and that's I think that's a good thing for lawyers making that transition to really keep in mind. That's right. That's right. Um, How did how did you feel about the evolution of uh, 
Uh, so what what number employee were you? How early were you? Uh, so I was uh, technically employee number four when I joined. Okay. Although very quickly, um, employees one to three were either left or were asked to leave. Okay. So like, uh, you know, for the remainder of the course of the company, my number was zero, zero, one. I was, oh, <laughs> I was employee wild. number one. <laughs> that was in the, so we all yeah. had our numbers on the back of our laptop of yeah. when we ended, so I was zero, zero, one. So I was, I was the first employee, um, which, you know, we can talk about the upside and the benefits and risk of being employee number one. Uh, yeah. but it's, yeah, <laughs> it's maybe a different podcast. So how did, uh, how did, how did you see your role change? over, you know, maybe one to, or let's call it four to 50, yeah. 50 to, you know, 50 to a hundred, a hundred to 200. Yeah. Um, you know, in the beginning, um, you're trying to do two things. One, um, you are learning, you're sort of learning, you're learning the trade, right? I mean, so if you work in house, um, or if you work at a startup, you have to know what your company is building. You have to know how they're planning on making money. You have to know what the product roadmap looks like. You have to really understand the business. And if you're That's working right. in a regulated space, you have to understand the regulation that applies to you. So, um, you know, I was an M&A corporate lawyer, had no idea about fintech regulation. I actually read the law for the first time since law school. Like yeah. I went and read. <laughs> it doesn't happen very yeah, often. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often. You, you end up... Um, Maybe litigators. Yeah, right? exactly. But I, yeah. I, you know, I pulled out like law books and I pulled out statutes and I actually read them. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, thing number one. Thing number two was the thing we talked about, which is uh, I learned very quickly about making decisions and and standing behind them. So yeah. when I, my my first day on the job, um, the founder of the company, uh, and you know, when you work at a startup, you just walk in. There's no HR. There's nothing. There's just walk yeah. in. You just kind of sit down. You open your laptop. You're like all right, I guess I'm here. What should I do? <laughs> and they're like, and they were like um, can you figure, and we were, we were trying to be a lending company. Okay. And, you know, they asked me a very open-ended, broad question. They're like, can you figure out the regulatory, can you figure out all the regulatory things we need to be a lending company? And let's chat yeah. later today. I was like, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, good. In the good. meantime, figure out how to build a spaceship to Mars and cure it, cancer. There you go. Yeah, um, sounds great. I was like, cool. Um, Let's chat later today. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I had some thoughts on it and yeah. I called up my friends who work at a law firm. Like, where do I get, where, where yeah. do I get the details on this? <laughs> <laughs> Calm, uh, cool, collected. Then as soon as like, as soon as you're on your own, just panicked and like panicked, out to called everyone I yeah. knew, <laughs> went on Google, which you yeah. learned very quickly. Um, it's a valuable When you can't tool. call up a law firm, Google has a lot of information you can use. Yeah. Um, um, uh, another and a credit to Google. Good, great job. <laughs> <laughs> Guys have created a law firm uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, so I was, um, so that was sort of like the beginning stages. And, you know, what you end up doing as a lawyer is you um, kind of overthink everything and you have to sure. just get, get out of your head a little bit, realize that the company is going to sort of build. The thing that I think ends up happening later on as a general counsel or as a uh, chief legal officer is um, more about your team and relationship building across the company, yeah. which took me a while to appreciate because lawyers are not very good at that. They're not very That's good. True. Some of them are great at managers. Some of them are not. Um, right. It's a skill I had to learn. 
Um, most of us are really bad at relationship building because it's not taught to us as a necessary skill. Right. Um, definitely client development is, but sure. what do you do when you're working in a 200 person company that's trying to grow, 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 and you know your job is to kind of mitigate risk. How do you build relationships with your product team and your engineering team? And had a great relationship with my CEO and the board, but like the rest of the organization. Yeah. Um, and the way to do that is to really have credibility. And as you know, as you mentioned earlier, like being a good lawyer is table stakes, or else you're not even at the table in house. Yeah. Being a good lawyer doesn't make you a good in-house lawyer, right, uh, but yeah. you got to be a good lawyer to be an in-house lawyer. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. Um, and maybe to rephrase that, it's you have to be. You have to be a really good lawyer. You have to. Yeah. You have to really, you know, know the regulation, know what's going on in your uh, space. Um, like you said, come to the table with either a solution or a really good alternative. Yeah. Um, and be thoughtful about the problem we're trying to solve for the solution um, that we that, that works from a business perspective. It's not enough to come with a solution that's just not going to fly in the market. Right. Um, and so when you do that and then you add a little bit of EQ to it and kind of build relationships with people, um, that ends up becoming the most important part of your job. And what I used to tell my team um, is, you know, think of yourself as a brand. Yeah. You've got a brand within the organization. That brand is going to carry itself not only at bread, but when you well beyond bread, you know, when your colleagues are out doing different things, they're going to remember you as a person who, you know, was X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And you want that to be as effective as possible, right? Not just a person who is a lawyer in the legal organization, but the person who helped us develop this product and is very thoughtful about it. Right. Um, so, you know, for my team, it was very much about what is our brand in the organization and yep. what is our individual brand? And I try to carry that with sort of my, my job as well, my personal job. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a great way to think about, think about the legal team because for sure every other business unit within the organization, either by the nature of the type of business unit they are or by, by deliberate action from the leadership, they have and promote a brand. Correct. Yes. Right. Yeah. And legal teams are no exception to that. Right. It's just oftentimes the brand that the legal teams have inadvertently promoted is not the best brand. Correct. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not a revenue generating function. Right. So yeah. you're immediately um, you're immediately on the back foot. Yeah. Right. And so what is a thing that you can add? What, what is a thing you can do to add value? Yeah. Um, if you're in a regulated space, it's a lot easier because you're immediately at the table because decisions require your input anyways. That's right. But but even if you are, and and especially if you're not, I think um, the, the way to add value is, again, to kind of be thoughtful about product development, thoughtful about how the company makes money, um, and add value that matters in the critical moments of the company's growth. So for us, you know, the fact that we were very thoughtful about compliance and legal made a big difference, I think, when we began to have conversations about an acquisition because yeah. we're a regulated company being bought um, and we got bought by a bank. It's gonna be the first question they really, uh, on due diligence lists, like beyond show me your formation documents. Correct, yeah. correct. Yeah, they spent a lot of time digging into that. And yeah. you know, luckily we were, we were pretty buttoned up um, and, and thoughtful about the decisions we made. 
Yeah. Um, so so that makes a big difference, I think. And I think if you can prove that as a general counsel, that, you know, all of this stuff that we're building, all the work that we're doing as a legal team or as a compliance team um, is going to be one of the larger building blocks of the organization, but also be the thing that um, people care about when you're a big company and you're going for an IPO or you're being acquired, like that ends up becoming the thing that makes or breaks companies at that yeah. stage. Right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if everything else is going well and that's not, it can be a very serious roadblock. Correct. And we yeah. know lots of companies that kind of grow on a weak foundation that have amazing revenue. And then when people diligence a company, it's sort of hollow inside when it comes to the real core infrastructure. Exactly. The operations and compliance and legal. So, yeah, absolutely. I know I mean, my my regulated industry prior to joining here was a little bit different than yours, but but the principles are the same. Yeah. Right. And you I mean, you know that I mean, you you were a pioneer in this uh, in, in figuring this out. Um, and, uh, kudos to you for doing that, but uh, you were, you were not well, only a pioneer, I but can't take, I can't take all the credit. <laughs> I, I have more help than you can imagine, uh, particularly in the founding team at, uh, uh at DK and a yeah. couple of the others that, uh, that were, I'd say way more impactful to the success there than I was, but, uh, but I was happy to be a part of it. Yeah. But I think the one thing that you probably did, um, which you should get credit for is you made a you made a judgment call, right? You made yeah. a decision, mm -hmm. and you stood by it. Um, and, I, and you know whether you do that or not, I think makes the difference between companies that are able to innovate in yeah. the legal space and companies who are not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A question on that thread: How do each of you approach balancing legal responsibilities with broader business goals? So, um, you know, the job of the general counsel is to. Um, uh, figure out legal risk. And I don't know if it's to mitigate it, but it should be, right? I mean, ultimately, some people argue- In an that, ideal world, yeah, right? Like some people say like the job of the legal function is like figure out the risk is, let the CEO or let someone else figure out whether what decision to make. Mm -hmm. I think the job of the general counsel should be to actually think about and actually make a decision on risk as well. Um, I think- I think their intention with revenue to a certain extent, but doesn't need to be, yeah. right? I, I think um, the more holistic way to think about it is there are many ways to make money. There are many ways and many paths to growth and success. Do we want to pick the path that has a risk of us losing money for whatever reason down the line because of the risk, or can we find an alternative way to do it? Um, I, I think the people, I think, I think the way to look at legal and growth as being at odds with each other um, is sort of a myopic view of looking at it. I think yeah. there can be a broader way where the two do go hand in hand. Um, that said, you know, legal should absolutely stand up and say no when like, you know, a company wants to grow at all costs and doing something illegal or that might be a risk to shareholders down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a it's it's a good question. I think it's the right question to ask. And it's a lot of it's a question that I think a lot of lawyers are try to figure out and it just sort of takes your career to to help you figure that out. Like, you know, some of it is I think the some of it is guidance from those that you trust. And I think some of it is uh is just experience. Right. Right. And 
And I think as lawyers, oftentimes we mischaracterize risk and like we mischaracterize the severity of the risk. Right. Right. Correct. We're, we're trained to take things to an almost obsessive compulsive end say, is this parade of terribles going to happen? Like, oh no, don't give on that provision because you, the whole company is going to explode. Right? Yeah. Like there's a ton of steps between that provision, you know, going in a way that you don't want it to go and your company exploding. But that's the way we think because we're trained to think that way. And so it's it, what I found in my career is that it's it's trying to get an understanding that that is that is one one potential outcome of many potential outcomes. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, maybe that's the like one in a million. Maybe it's one in ten. Maybe it's one in two. Yeah. Right. Who knows? It depends on what the issue is. Right. But like recognizing that more often than not, there's more than one outcome and, and a lot of things have to happen. Now, and I know I've said this probably about 10,000 times. Uh, I'll steal a phrase from aviation. It's not the first mistake that kills you. It's the 10th. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You get, you end up getting behind the plane and all of a sudden it's really, really bad. Like, yeah. Real bad. Yeah. And uh, law of practice can be the same way. Yeah. Right. It's not giving into the provision in that contract or it's not, you know, it's not missing that regulatory requirement. You know, there's a lot of different things that have to happen, even if you do miss a regulatory requirement to have the business implode. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you think about it. OK, are you building relationships with the regulators? Are you being proactive about those relationships? Mm -hmm. Are you creating a culture of compliance within your organization? Mm -hmm. Right. All sorts of different things around that, that that are really important to think about. And when when you do change your mindset in that way, where it's sort of this entire recipe of of things that need to combine to produce a particular outcome, it opens the door for you to start to think about those business opportunities in a little bit of a different way. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people like to say, like, oh, I like I can see around corners and I can find that risk. And it's like, yeah, maybe you can, maybe you can't like good for you. But a lot of it is being able to manage that risk and also being comfortable with the fact that like, you know, like your ability to manage it may not be or may not mean that you eliminate that risk or that um, that that risk won't come to fruition. Yeah. Like maybe you recognize that it will, but that's OK. Yeah. Like, oh, like we're probably going to get sued, but that's all right. We'll deal with it. Yeah. We'll handle it. Right? And it we, like we have we have a good place to be. We have good arguments to make. Right. Or I know that we can come to a good settlement on a business side with these people. And let's just move forward under the assumption that if thing, if if things start to go bad, we can manage the relationship well enough. Correct. Right. Yeah. And then that allows you to prioritize the business side um, in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think it's a, the probability angle that I think most lawyers miss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I think I credit this to someone on Twitter, which is where I get a lot of sage legal, uh, sage life advice. <laughs> yeah, legal spot. advice. Yeah. Uh, someone posted this like, you know, a good lawyer will yeah, assess the risk, but also the probability. And, um, and, and the probability part is the most important part, right? I mean, yeah. everything, everything will, the world will end, like everything bad will happen, but like, what's the probability of it happening? And are you okay with that probability? 
Yeah. Um, and if you stack up a bu bunch of improbable things together, like maybe then you're in a bad spot, right? Right. But if it's the one improbable thing, are you okay taking that risk? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or if you recognize that all of those improbable things are actually related to the one thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and that one thing is something that someone unpredictable manages. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, then it starts to get difficult. Yeah. Um, but that's the fun of it. Like that, that's the freedom of, of operating in house that you, you don't really have that same freedom in a law firm. You don't, you don't. And I, I think that's sort of, you know, when, when people ask me like, do you regret leaving a law firm or do you regret, regret, you know, private practice? Um, um, absolutely not. I, you know, the colleagues I work with a while were fantastic at what they did yep. really smart. Um, but you know, what I got to do at bread was two things. One, have that freedom to really, really unleash myself as a lawyer, um, where, you know, I think I had good training, um, but really like begin to make very tough decisions in a very high pressured environment where the company is trying to grow. Um, and the second thing you get to do when you're in house is you are actually building something with yeah. other people, you're building a company. Um, and you're building something hopefully that'll be long lasting and sustainable. But um, you know, that's a lot of fun because you yeah. get to do that with other people who are not lawyers. They were like thinking about things a different way. That's right. Um, and that's super fascinating. So I, I had a great time with, yeah. The people, the people are always the best part. Yeah, they really, right? it's, it's the cheesiest yeah. thing in the world. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's so true. And I think it's a cliche for a reason because when it's true, it's, it's really true. Like the people at my company, I mean, we all have gone on to do different things. And we're like the, you know, the bunch that comes together, together at the college reunion. It's like, ah, yeah. oh, the good old days. Like it's yeah. ne it hasn't been the same since then. Like, yeah. you know, everyone's like, my company's, you know, great, but it's not like we had it at bread. Right. Um, so we really had a special bunch and it was, uh, it was, it was really great to like work alongside those people. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about what you're doing now. Yeah. So um, after the bread exit, we, you know, we, we all, all of my colleagues and I went on different things. Uh, I went and traveled. And yeah. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thing to do. <laughs> I did. A, yeah, I traveled. I, um, I took time off. I, um, I ran a marathon. I, nice. I Congratulations. Just, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, I um, read books. I, I did a lot of stuff that was honestly like, very fulfilling. And I had been working, you know, since law school for 15 years. So it was like a moment to kind of take a break and, um, you know, not think about professional things for a while, which is yeah. very unique for me. Uh, so it took some time off, did some consulting work, um, uh, continue to do that. And um, we, uh, I got the entrepreneurial itch again. Nice. And nice. I think it never goes away. You never fully scratch yeah. it. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I wanted to build something I kind of stumbled on this idea um, and uh, thought more about it. And the more I thought about it, I felt like there was something there that was bigger than just a side project that I was working on. Yeah. Um, and uh, the idea is around the most insanely boring topic imaginable, which is compliance training, right. <laughs> <laughs> which which doesn't make me popular at any of the tech conferences or the but. Uh, I mean, it's it's wildly important, <laughs> right. and there's a huge TAM. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the TAM know. is like you know every company or employee that's out there. Right. Um, what we realize is two things: one, 
the bar is very low here because it's just such a broken area. And then when I think of compliance training, I'm thinking of corporate training generally. Yeah. Um, not done well at all because we've all taken yeah. those cheesy, listen in on those cheesy videos that were yeah. like, you know, filmed in the 1970s with bad acting, outdated <laughs> references, like, yeah. you know, just really bad stuff. Um, and people are expected to take these trainings and uh, number one, learn something. Number two, there's an expectation that this is going to be relevant for your job when it's not. Right. So it's very impersonal. And we think the content, there's a very low bar for making good content too. We think technology has evolved enough where we can do things in a very cool, innovative way when it comes to corporate training. So, you know, AI yeah. is like the big thing now. Oh, yeah. Everyone is like anything AI. Like, yeah, yeah I'm building a house with AI. And you're like, oh, great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'll invest. I'll invest. Right. <laughs> 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 where did I give you my money? <laughs> um, so I, I joke you can throw AI at the end of anything. Yeah. And, becomes investable but so uh, <laughs> hopefully we're not that but right. uh we're we're trying to build something that you know is is scalable um where um and i learned this at bread uh, one of the things that my team did really well was um, in order to build these relationships with the product team engineering team we had to do these trainings and we said look let's not make these compliance trainings let's make these informational sessions where we teach our colleagues how they can be better at their jobs. Yep. Um, because the one thing I learned is that, well, we all know this, everybody likes to learn when it's relevant to them. That's right. And every most people like to improve themselves at whatever they do. Largely. Largely, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. not everyone, largely. Most people yeah. like to be better at whatever they do. Yeah. Um, and you know, when you arm people, especially in a regulated space or not, with the tools they need to be better at their job, be better product managers, be better engineers, be better salespeople, um, while making the content really personal to them, um, it changes their attention span immediately. It changes the narrative. It's no longer compliance training. It's like, this is the thing that's gonna help me just be more effective. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's sort of what we did at Bread. I think our colleagues found it effective and that's what we're trying to build at my new company. That's awesome. And basically take that to as many companies as will accept, right? That, that, that's right. As long as, as soon as I mention compliance training, people hang up, but right. I, <laughs> I have to get past that point. And, but yeah, people, I mean, look, the, the conversation is usually, what do you do for compliance training? Oh, we use this horrible tool. I don't even know what it's called. Like it's horrible. We have to do it. Would you like to do something better? Sure. Um, let's take a look at it like no like the bar for like what is out there in the world is broken is is so low and obvious like people are like yeah, yeah. whatever exists today is not no good um, what, are you selling into specifically like legal and compliance teams or are you also selling into people teams like uh, hr yeah so we haven't gone to that second part okay um still still early stage product side. still very early stage still in yeah. building mode um i've got a co-founder who i've known for um, many, many years. He's one of the early employees at Bread. Nice. So to, to the point of yeah. like, you work with people you really like with, yeah. you work with them again. That's um, right. He was one of the early uh, early employees and one of the first software engineers at Bread. Yeah. Um, and became a good friend as well. So he and I are building this thing together. Um, uh, but that's, yeah. That's uh, a ton of fun. Oh, it's so much fun. Yeah, cause, fun. yeah, because we, we, he and I like, 
outside of work, we ran a couple of half marathons. Okay. Um, I've known him for, for a lot of years, but it ends up being like, you know, when we chit chat or we catch up, we talk about like, oh, what are you doing for diet? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing this. Like, what do you, what'd you do over the weekend? Like, you know, we talk about life stuff as well, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, uh, he's, he's giving me, I was trying to lose weight. He's giving me tips on how to like, you know, not eat sugar and not eat bread. I was like, ah, it's right. never going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll gain the weight. I'm fine with it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. I mean, we've got, um, we've got, I think five, five or six people here who I worked with at DraftKings. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and then, I mean, there's just something about, about the relationship. There's a whole bunch of folks here who work together at Backupify and Datto. Um, and that's, that's actually, I think where Chris and, and Vishal, our founders, okay. who you know, yeah. that, that's where they met. And, and there, there is a big element to that where it's like, I want to start something with somebody I know that I can work with and enjoy being around as a human right. being. Yeah. Like it just, it makes it that much more fun, that much more special. Right. Yeah. Right. It is, you know, I mean, you spend so much time with people you work with and sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah. But when you do have a choice, I think it's a lot like a relationship. You want to pick someone you enjoy being around, someone you can trust. Um, and um, yeah, and someone, you know, you, you respect. Um, yeah. And if you can find all three things and then you go, you go on a date together and you figure stuff out and you, yeah. you know, you... That's a great analogy. I'm not very good at dating advice. So, uh, <laughs> um, that's awesome. But, uh, yeah. So, um, so I think, I think we're running, running up on time, getting a little close to time here. Um, Alyssa wanted to see if there's any, there's anything, uh, that's come in from the audience. Yes, we have a few. One is how to deal with inevitable pushback from the business as a compliance function. Yeah, uh, that's that's always a fun one because we um, we we learned that uh, you know I mean my my again my company regulated company we had a compliance team and oftentimes we had to say no. I think um, um, two very tactical um, things because generally the answer is you know be thoughtful about when you say no. Right. Um, and to your point, Tim, earlier, like. When you do say no, make sure you have an alternative or solution that's practical in the market and that's business savvy at the table. Yep. Um, that's sort of the obvious thing. Um, the other obvious thing that I think sometimes people overlook is know your area, know your space really well. So compliance, regulation, whatever it is, know it really well because if you are surrounded by smart colleagues, they will also know it and they might come at you with questions and yeah. And, and a lot of people think, well, I know my space, but like yeah. your product team may know it too. Uh, yeah. And they, they might come at you with questions to know it really well. But I think the part that often gets overlooked is have a good relationship with the leadership at the company. Yeah. Um, and that's very hard to develop. Like I had a very good relationship with my, with my CEO um, and our board and they supported the legal function. Mm -hmm. So there was never a question of like, well, if Faraz is saying no, the CEO, you know, we can go to the Josh, the CEO, and he might say yes. Like we were always in alignment with each other. Yeah. Um, and it, often, if there was tension, I, you know, we would speak about it first. So, you know, if you're a compliance function, have a good relationship with whoever that person is. You know, the leadership, so that there's a um, there's sort of a narrative at the company that this is not just coming from compliance. This is coming from the company leadership. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you're not on an island seemingly being unreasonable. Right, right. right. Or you're not viewed as like the 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 sort of bad cop or the bad parent, and then we yeah. can go to the good parent later on and, and get over it. And Because that's the one yeah. thing you never want is as a compliance person to say no, front. and they get overridden by the good parent, in which case you lose all credibility. So you have that, to. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I found that finding uh, finding champions within the business right. is good too. Like just through like those individual, those individual conversations that you have with, whether it's someone in IT, someone on the product side, you know, some engineer somewhere, right, is thinking about some of the security stuff. Uh, like a lot, actually a lot of those people are thinking about, about mission critical security things. Mm -hmm. And they tend to be a lot, uh, tend to be a lot more receptive maybe than folks in certain other roles to uh, to really embracing and running with some of the compliance initiatives. Correct, yeah, that's right, that's right. It's a good question. Awesome, yeah, great question. Advice for building out a compliance program from scratch. Um, advice, so. You can't give away too much because I'm sure some of this comes into your consulting stuff too. Yeah, so. I, uh, <laughs> for part B, call me now. <laughs> Promo code. Right, right, right. Get a 10% discount. Um, uh, building a compliance function or compliance program from scratch, yeah. It should be program. Program. Um, yeah, so the sort of the bedrock of a compliance program is you have your policies, which are the words out in paper, right? So what, what is a lot of people confuse compliance and legal. So legal figures out what the rules are. Compliance implements them um, at the company. And then I think the part that a lot of people miss is compliance should operationalize them within the company as well. So, you know, the first part is like you agree as a company, what are the rules we're going to follow? Uh, and you put them down on paper. So a lot of first things that a compliance person should do is like write policies. Mm -hmm. um, are they really important? No, because they're words on paper. If, they, if you're not actually doing them, it's not important. Yeah. So the, the second part is the part that's very difficult for a lot of people is like, all right, you've all agreed that these are the rules we're going to follow. Now you have to operationalize them. Uh, and what that means is like, right, we say we're going to do A, B, and C. Like, are we actually going to do A, B, and C? And how are we going to do it? And who's going to do it? And who's right. going to check the person who's doing it? And how are we going to monitor this? And are we going to do it again next year? Yeah. All that stuff <laughs> becomes really, really difficult when you actually have to go talk to your sales team and your product team and be like, I need you to do this. Right. Um, and so that part, I think, um, is where it gets tricky. And I think that's where you really need to um, understand where your company is at the stage of growth. So if you're yeah. early stage, obviously you can cumber, encumber people with a lot of process. If you're later stage, you can certainly do that. So uh, to answer the question, I think it's write stuff down, document everything, and then begin to think three-dimensionally about things like, all right, this is the stuff on paper. Um, now let's bring it to life. How do we do that? Yeah. And then you're going to begin to think of like, all right, who's my salesperson? Who's my VP of product? Like, how are we going to get these people in a meeting room together? How are we going to talk through these issues? And so, yeah. One last question. What is your leadership style and how has it changed over time? Oh, man. Um, I think my leadership style is very similar to have grown as a person over time, 
which is I learned to relax. <laughs> which is, which Ad, is, advice for every lawyer out there: learn to relax. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, one of the like you know there is. Um, I'm a huge tennis fan and a huge fan of Roger Federer. Yeah, and you know, the, the, the sort of one of the reason I one of the reasons why I think he's so emblematic in the world is because when he plays, he's so effortless and he looks so relaxed. And you know, one of the things that one of the worst things you can say is to someone who's overthinking something is relaxed because that's the opposite of what they're going right. to do. <laughs> but, you know, what you realize watching Roger Federer is like it, behind that kind of relaxed composure is like years and years and years of training. Yeah. So if you really believe that you have um, all the training and you, you have a good sense of yourself as a lawyer, um, learn to let go and relax a little bit. So my leadership style in the beginning was like, I was a micromanager. I was I was very tense. I was like, yeah. you know, wanted to know everything was done correctly. And then as I kind of grew up as a lawyer, as a CLO and as a person now, <laughs> I've learned to <laughs> chill out a little bit. And if you ask all my friends, they'll be like, yeah, you chilled out more than you would. <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as sort of we got to the end of our cycle at Bread, um, you know, if you ask my team, I think they would say like, you, you, you know, definitely chilled out a little bit, mellowed out. And that came with like trusting myself a bit more, but also trusting my team and trusting what we had built. And that, you know, if, if I believed that what we did was right, uh, then it would, it would kind of self-effectuate and lead to a good outcome, which it did. So, um, uh, kind of trust, trust the process. Awesome. Well, yeah. Ross, thank you so much yeah. for, for joining. This has been an awesome conversation. Great to great to catch up. I can't believe it's been as long as it has, but uh, uh, I'm glad we got the chance to do this. And everybody uh, watching, listening, follow us on all the socials, like us, all that, and we'll see you next time.